from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our second text is from the book of James, the fifth chapter, verses 7 through 10. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this morning I'd like to speak on the theme of waiting when the waiting is hard. Waiting when the waiting is hard. Several years ago, executives at a Houston airport had to uh, deal with a recurring complaint from their inbound passengers. With great volume and frequency, these passengers were griping about their wait time at baggage claim. So the executives uh, decided to act. They decided to make a decision. They decided to add more baggage handlers for every flight that would come into their airport. And it made a difference. The average wait time actually fell to about an eight-minute average, which at that time was right within industry standard. But to their surprise, the complaints continued with volume and with, with frequency even after they had made the decision to add more personnel. So the, the executives decided to take a more nuanced and detailed look at the data and to try to discern what these inbound passengers were actually experiencing so that they could understand their complaints. And so what they did was is that they started to clock how long it took inbound passengers to walk from their gate to the baggage claim. Now, at this particular airport back then, it only took, on average, one minute to walk from the gate to the baggage area. So you can do the math, right? Passengers were waiting at baggage claim on an average of about seven minutes. 88% of their time was standing still, watching the carousel spin around, but watching it without luggage, right? This is, by the way, pre-cell phones, okay? <laughs> So the airport decided uh, to change things up. The first thing they did was that they moved the gates further away from the main terminal. And second, they routed bags for every incoming flight 
to the furthest carousel away from that particular gate. Passengers now had to walk six times longer to get their bags. And complaints dropped to zero. So what's the takeaway of this little social experiment? The takeaway is this. Waiting during unoccupied time is more psychologically taxing and burdensome than waiting time that is occupied by activity or distraction. Unoccupied time is harder to deal with than occupied time, right? I mean, this is precisely why Disney World wraps their lines around buildings and why they create serpentine cues so people are constantly Moving, And when you're constantly moving, you don't feel as if you're waiting as long as you're actually waiting. What would be your waiting time now becomes occupied time through some activity like a long walk to baggage claim or through some distraction like taking out your cell phone while you're waiting, browsing the internet, checking the scores. You see, in our fast-paced, instant gratification, technologically driven, and consumer-based culture, I, I think it's safe to say that almost every industry out there has thought about how to eliminate the experience of unoccupied time. How do we eliminate that experience for human beings? Because when there is nothing to distract you, when there's nothing to distract us, we become aware of the fact that the thing that we're waiting for is actually not here yet. When we're not distracted, when we're not busy, when we're actually having to wait in the moment and watch the carousel, we recognize and feel that our bags are not here yet. And friends, we don't like that feeling. We've actually been conditioned not to like that feeling. Now, a lot of our waiting, right? A lot of our waiting is pretty mundane. It does not belong to the category of a life or death situation. But we do wait for some things that are more serious. We wait for some things in our life. Perhaps you're waiting right now for something much more meaningful than picking up your luggage at carousel number five. Like the waiting that you're going through for your loved one to finally get clean or the waiting for a diagnosis for your child, or or the waiting for a broken relationship to heal or to mend, or or the waiting for the grief that we carry each and every day to subside, or the waiting to get into affordable housing, to get off the streets, or the waiting to hear from the college that we have our hearts set on, or the waiting in a more macro way for our purpose to emerge or some direction to be given and spoken into our lives, something to be clear for us in a season where all we feel like is that we're wandering and that we're lost, right? But even in these more serious moments of waiting, we are conditioned 
We are conditioned to want distraction, even in these serious moments. It's not just standing at the carousel. Even in these serious moments, we're actually conditioned to want distraction. We're conditioned by, by culture to avoid the dissonance of being fully aware and cognizant of the fact that we don't actually have what we're waiting for. That we don't have what we, what we long for and what we want. I was in the Holy Land uh, this past May, and the trip, like any trip to the Holy Land, includes an itinerary that has holy and sacred sites on it, sites where significant biblical events are said to have uh, taken place. And, and one of the stops on our itinerary was the Church of the Nativity. I actually talked about this experience in a different way in a sermon a few weeks ago. Uh, the Church of the Nativity is a basilica that's located in Bethlehem, which means it's in uh, the West Bank. And, and underneath uh, the church, there's a grotto, which claims the actual spot where Jesus was born, where Mary gave birth to the Christ child. And since the second century, pilgrims have traveled from around the world to this spot to kneel down, to look in, to touch the rock where it's believed that Mary gave birth on that first Christmas morn. So I show up with our group with great anticipation. I, I kind of have this sense of what I would call sacred gravitas as I'm about to see this holy sight. But that realization, or that desire rather, uh, was not realized. That desire I realized right away was, was quickly out of my reach as multiple tour groups began to show up. And people began pushing and shoving to pass through narrow doorways. Tour guides with, with smaller groups started to cut the line, which brought wrath and anger uh, from other tour leaders. And they expressed their wrath and anger in languages and tongues that I did not understand. It was hot. And we were like livestock. We were, we were crowded tightly. We were herded along by less than kind employees of the church. And in that moment, as we were waiting to see this sacred site, one of the, the most sacred sites in all of Christianity, I did something that was so conditioned in me, something so subconsciously embedded in my brain that I didn't even think about it before I did it. I reached into my pocket and I pulled out my iPhone and I started to check my unread emails. Yeah, I did that. Right in the church of the nativity, <laughs> waiting to see the actual birthplace of Jesus. Again, I wasn't conscious of it. I, I, just, I just did it. I wasn't thinking about it. It just, it just happened. And I wasn't aware of what I was doing until a friend of mine who's also a pastor said, said Tony, are you seriously checking your email as you are waiting in line to see the birthplace of your Savior and Lord? Come on, man. Right? I mean, who does that? Instead of entering this unoccupied time of waiting with, with reflection or prayer or, or meditation or preparation, I wanted to distract myself. I wanted to distract myself to occupy my time and attention when the waiting was hard. I don't want to wait when the waiting is hard. And the waiting was hard because of the crowds because of the temperature, because of the secularization of that holy site. The waiting was hard because of the people who were cutting in line and, and who were yelling at each other. But most of all, most of all, the waiting was hard because what I was waiting for 
that sacred spiritual experience was so far away from me. And I didn't want to wait in that space. I didn't want to be aware of the dissonance. I didn't want to be aware of the letdown. I didn't want to be aware of all that was going on that was robbing me of this sacred moment. I wanted to escape because the waiting was like a messenger. It was like a preacher preaching a sermon, making it clear that I was far away from what I was hoping for. Friends, as you know, Advent uh, is about waiting. Advent's about waiting. It's about waiting to receive Emmanuel. It's about waiting to receive God with us. It's about waiting to receive God in the flesh, flesh in and as Jesus of Nazareth. It's about waiting for Christ to come again. It's about waiting for that day when Christ will come and put you and me and this whole world to rights. It's about waiting with anticipation the way the people of God waited during the time of the prophet Isaiah, thinking about the text that Rob read for us this morning. We find the people waiting for God. And they're waiting for God to put an end to exile. They're waiting for God in this particular historical moment. They're waiting for God to put an end to captivity. They're waiting for God to bring them home. They're waiting for salvation. They're waiting for redemption. They're waiting for the time when they would return to Zion with singing and when the day of sorrow and sighing would be no more. And this, to be sure, is one element of Advent waiting. This is one aspect of Advent waiting. Waiting in hope for God to show up. Waiting for for God in hope to do something totally new. But there's another type of waiting that's a part of the Advent season. Jamie Butcher, one of our pastors who's leading in worship with us this morning, she wrote about this type of waiting in an entry from our Advent devotional this past week. Some of you have read it. Jamie had a powerful line in that devotional when she said this, Advent waiting is recognizing that Jesus' birth didn't tie things up in a shiny bow. That Jesus' birth didn't resolve everything in one fell swoop, right? Because in Advent, we're fully aware of what we're waiting for and we're fully aware that it's not here yet. We're fully aware of what we're waiting for, but we're also aware that it is not here yet, right? I mean, think about this text and the experience of the people of God during the time of the prophet Isaiah, this text that actually appears in the church lectionary every three years. Chapter 35, for sure, finds this prophet proclaiming a day of hope, a day on the horizon when exile and captivity will end, when God will claim final victory, and all are going to see God's salvific work. But there still is, in real time, for the people of God receiving this message, there is, in real time, prevailing darkness. There is, in real time, captivity. There is, in real time, exile, right? Note the obvious in the text as the prophet is talking about this day that will come, right? We can infer that that day is not here yet, which means, right, as you look at the text, there is still a wilderness. The land is dry. Hands are weak. Knees are feeble. Fear is pervasive. Eyes are blind. Ears are deaf. The lame continue to stumble and they continue to fall. The sand under their feet is burning and all the springs 
have dried up. The people are waiting in darkness. The people are waiting when the waiting is hard. And friends, Advent, in a countercultural way, invites us to wait when the waiting is hard too. It's a countercultural message, right? Advent is not Disney World. Advent is not that airport in Houston. Advent is not checking your email to distract yourself from the reality of how hard it is to wait from the thing that we so desperately, for the thing that we so desperately long for, right? Advent calls us away from the habits of distraction that, that seeks to avoid the dissonance, right? Advent, what it actually does, I think, in many ways is create for us and invite us into unoccupied time. It creates that space. Advent wants us to name what's not right with the world. Advent wants us to name what's not right with us. Advent unapologetically calls the darkness dark. It invites us to be present and to be aware of our our longing for God. It invites us to be attentive to our trauma and our pain. It invites us to tell the truth about what we've done and what we've left undone. It invites us to sit with the brokenness and the hostilities of the world. It invites us to acknowledge the limitations of our bodies and the fragility of our souls. It invites us to sit with mystery, with the mysteries of life and death, with the mysteries of love and loss, with the mysteries of sin and redemption, with the mysteries of hope and fear, with the mystery of God's nearness and God's absence. And in this waiting, I think, when the waiting is hard, when it is dark, when we seek to avoid distraction, when we seek to avoid busyness, only then do we open ourselves up to the immensity of the light of God that God is ushering into our lives and into the life of the world. Alison Brown is a, is a friend of mine. She turns 39 years old this Saturday. And I've known Allison since she was in middle school when I was a youth intern at the very first Presbyterian church uh, that I served. Uh, When she was in college, this is about two decades ago, she and her her boyfriend, it was a person who would eventually become her spouse, they, they spent a Saturday afternoon watching movies together when all of a sudden Allison had a massive headache. And before she knew it, she was passed out and she was unresponsive on the floor, and as an ambulance came and took her to the hospital, on the way there, uh, she actually coded. She stopped breathing. The EMTs uh, started her breathing again, and after the, all the chaos of that immediate moment uh, started to settle down, the doctors told Allison's parents that, that she had an AVM. It's a congenital, an abnormal connection between veins and arteries in her brain that eventually ruptured. Katie and I got, got word of what had happened, and, and we immediately drove over to the hospital. And when we stepped out of, of the elevator and we came around to the waiting room of the ICU, we saw about 15 college students in that, IC, in that ICU waiting room. And what was so interesting about that moment is that the lights were out. They had turned the lights out, and there was a single candle on the table in that room. And they brought hymnals and they started to sing, and they started to, to pray, and they started to weep, and they started to cry, and they started to name the fact that Allison was in that ICU room, and that everything was not okay. 
and that everything was not all right. They waited there in the dark. And outside that ICU in that tiny waiting room, those college students taught me a valuable lesson that day. They taught me what it means to wait when the waiting is hard. They taught me what it means to flee from distraction, to flee from busyness and be present to God and to be present of what our heart desires even as we wait in the dark. Friends, in what's left of this Advent season, I encourage you to keep vigil, to pay attention, to recognize the dark, to not be distracted, to give ourselves over to busyness as a way to avoid the weight or the longing that we so desperately desire. Friends, actually name the darkness. Name it. Call it for what it is. Be aware of what is not right in you. Be aware of what's not right in the world. Wait when the waiting is hard. That's Advent. Waiting when the waiting is hard. And when we wait in this season of Advent, we then become prepared. We become ever more ready to receive the light that is about to break on the horizon. To receive the light that will be born again in you and in me and in the world. Wait even when the waiting is hard. Let us pray. Lord, give us the grace and the stamina and the courage we need to wait in the darkness, to be cognizant of what we desire, of what we long for, to be cognizant of both your presence and your absence, to be aware of what we are waiting for. Because Lord, only then we know will we receive the power and the depth of your light, of your grace, of your hope. We call that hope by a name. We call that hope Jesus. We ask that we would be prepared once again to receive his light. We make this prayer in his name, praying the prayer he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.